I read a quote uh, which uh, was uh, from the very centre of the intellectual project of our age, that place where you can go to find out exactly uh, the very deepest thoughts that people have, namely a live talk show. I think it might have been Oprah. Uh, and it made me wonder, actually, is, is she still going? She's done. Her work here is done, and aren't we glad about that? Anyway, uh, the topic for the day dealt with the question of pornography. And uh, someone made a comment, it was the comment that uh, just um, set the room alight, rapturous applause, everyone was really enthusiastic because the, the, the decisive thing had been said. And here's what the person said, they said, the great thing about our society is... And it's worth, worth pondering, what, what would you say next? The great thing about our society is that you can have your opinion and I can have mine. And that was it. Uh, that actually shut down discussion because once that's been said, I mean, it's hard to know what there's left to discuss. I mean, you've just got your opinion, I've got my opinion, and that's all there is to it. Uh, we live as that so brilliantly articulated, we live in a pluralistic world. And there are two ways to understand that pluralism. Uh, on the one hand, it's simply a fact. Uh, now, as a consequence of globalisation, we just have a much greater and more immediate awareness of the massive diversity of our world, of races, of value systems, of heritage, of language, of culture, of religion, that, that are just right across the world. Um, globalisation means that you can now get a Big Mac north, south, east and west and apparently no two countries that have stores that sell Big Macs have ever been to war with each other. So you want peace in this world? Plant McDonald's. Um, we call this social pluralism. Social pluralism. And, and what's more, I think it's pretty clear that it's undoubtedly a good thing. Social pluralism is good for peace, that, that we don't um, uh, call other cultures wrong. Uh, it's certainly good for uh, dining out. When I was a kid, the only option was hamburgers or Chinese, which had its inevitable sweet and sour pork, as though pineapples were ever a really strong feature of Chinese cuisine. But now, of course, you can get Thai, Lebanese, Greek, Italian, Indian. Uh, it's great for dining out. And uh, social pluralism is good for the gospel. The nations come to us here in this country and we go to the nations. Social pluralism. Uh, but there's a much more profound and disturbing sort of pluralism, uh, which is what the Oprah philosopher was actually getting at. And this is what you would call truth pluralism. Truth pluralism is the conviction that there is no such thing as truth. Uh, except, of course, the truth that there's no such thing as truth. Uh, truth pluralism means that at a very literal level, you are right and I am right, no matter what we say. You can have your opinion and I can have my opinion and that's all they ever are. There's a slightly softer-edged version of it. Uh, which is that there may be truth, there may be right, but we're so completely sort of stuck in our own perspective, we're so sort of limited by our context and culture, by our way of seeing things, 
that we will never ever really get access to that truth and so you can never ever really be dogmatic about it. This uh, truth pluralism slips over into what you'd call relativism. The, the idea that everything you know is just relative to who you are and where you stand and how you see things. All that you ever have is a perspective, an opinion. And therefore, to bring in that other key word of this sort of trinity of convictions of the modern social sciences, the only appropriate stance towards another person or towards their ideas is tolerance. Tolerance, which uh, doesn't mean so much don't hit people just because you disagreement, uh, disagree with them. That, of course, is an entirely Christian concept. It has its right place in social pluralist, uh, pluralism. Now, this kind of tolerance truth tolerance, you might call it, means that you have to agree with other people. Pluralism, relativism, tolerance. These three together make up what you might call an unholy trinity. Now, I saw this most uh, starkly at a wine, cheese and conversation about God event some time ago. Um, I, was, I was talking with uh, a person who was from uh, the Hindu religion and uh, we were talking fairly uh, happily, and you know, the conversation went on. Da, 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 that was all very. Uh, and then we got to some just points of disagreement. And um, I asked the question: Is it possible for me to disagree with you and at the same time respect you? Is it possible for me to disagree with you and at the same time to respect you? To disagree with your idea, but to respect you as a person. And, and she didn't even need to pause or think about it. She knew what the answer to that question was. The answer to that question, no. The only way you can respect me is to agree with me that what I say is right. Which, of course, turns out to be quite intolerant, actually. Now, you see the significance of this and, and why we're kind of, I'm in, using this uh, introduction uh, to kind of locate what we've been doing over the past three weeks and now this fourth week on these solars. Because um, what this pluralism, truth pluralism, this relativism and this tolerance, truth tolerance, what, what this kind of set of ideas ends up meaning is that any claim by any ideology or religion to be right must necessarily be wrong. There can and must not be any solas. There can and must not be any alones. There can and must not be any exclusiveness. There is literally no room for truth. And that's our context. But it's not the way of Christ. And so the solas... Uh, these alones from the 16th century, for crying out loud, I mean, 1550s we're talking, turn out to be every bit as significant and urgent now as they were in the time of the Reformation. And particularly the one tonight. Particularly our theme for tonight, which is that it is in Christ alone that we're made right with God. Because of all the solas, this one is the really pointy end. It's the most culturally offensive. See, it's quite easy to be positive about grace. I mean, who, who doesn't need a little bit more grace in their life? That's not such a big deal. Yes to grace. And who, it's not that hard to be positive about faith. Yes, faith. 
Great. I just, you know how many times you heard, I wish I could have your faith. Really? Well, anyway, you know, faith is positive. Even to recognise the culturally significant contribution of the Judeo-Christian scriptures. We can be positive about the scriptures as well. But salvation in Christ alone sticks in the cultural crawl. It offends deeply against the pluralism and relativism and tolerance of our age. And I suspect it's for that reason, amongst others, that uh, Professor Sir Alfred Eyre, he was an Oxford philosopher, he held, uh, was one of the leading advocates of a philosophical school called Logical Positivism, and he was an outspoken critic of the Christian faith. Uh, he nailed this precisely. Uh, in his view, uh, he wrote some years ago that uh, there was quite a strong case for regarding Christianity as the worst of the major religions. It wasn't just sort of equal in there. It was the worst, the most destructive of all the world's major religions. Why? Well, listen to what he says. It's because Christianity rests on the allied doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement. Vicarious just means on behalf of someone else. Christianity rests on the allied doctrines of original sin and vicarious atonement which are intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. Now he's right, of course. Uh, not perhaps about the contemptible and outrageous bit. Uh, but he's right that Christianity, Christ alone, rests on those twin foundations. Original sin and vicarious atonement. And so as uh, we look at this uh, theme tonight, this pointy theme of Christ alone, uh, we're going to learn three things. Uh, why Christ alone, how Christ alone, and so what Christ alone. How, why Christ alone, the depth of sin, how Christ alone, the power of the cross. You see, original sin, vicarious atonement, that's points one and two, and then we'll wrap it up with a conclusion, so what Christ alone, the mission of God. All right, first then, why Christ alone? Uh, I don't think you have to be a particularly uh, astute or insightful person uh, to recognise that there are two things about human nature that are just pretty obvious as you uh, look out onto the world, as you read the newspaper, as you have even a fairly basic uh, understanding of your own uh, self. On the one hand, it's perfectly clear that human beings are capable of, frankly, awe-inspiring kindness and sacrifice and compassion. Uh, the love that parents have for children, or as things age, it switches around again, actually, the way that children look after parents. Uh, the loyalty that friends display to one another, the ingenuity that workers daily enact in incredible circumstances, uh, these all point to an astonishing dignity, an astonishing dignity and even glory in human beings. And... And at the same time, it's equally clear that human beings are capable right up the other end of the spectrum of acts of appalling atrocity. Hatred and prejudice and violence and abuse of the most vulnerable and least able members of our society speak powerfully to us of the darkness in the human heart. And the truth is, if, if we're honest with ourselves, uh, we know that none of that stuff is actually terribly far 
from the heart of every one of us in different circumstances, with different pressures, you and I would do some of the same things. You and I would do some of the same things. It's in us. And the challenge is how to hold these two things together. How to hold the dignity and the depravity. Uh, the glory and the grotesqueness of human being together without pretending, without whitewashing, without underselling. Because you see, there are two contemporary answers that tilt one way or the other and therefore neglect the other truth. See, on the one hand, there are those who regard humanity as an entirely and irredeemably negative force in this world. A virus, a contagion on the earth that represents an evolutionary wrong turn. And the sooner human beings eradicate themselves and given their violent and self-destructive tendencies, that is inevitable. The sooner that human beings eradicate themselves, the better for all other species and the better for the planet. All bad, all sinful, all evil. On the other hand, many regard human beings as basically good. At their core, oriented to all that is good and beautiful and true. And where the good and the beautiful and true is underexpressed, then, then we know why that is. That's a result of outside interference. That's a result of poor circumstances, of poor parenting, of poor education, of poor environment, of poor government, of poor social services. It's outside circumstances. Uh, listen to how uh, one leading Hindu scholar put it. Um, this person's name is Swami Vivekananda, uh, a Hindu reformer and uh, founder of the Ramakrishna Mission. Uh, listen to what he, uh, what he says. The Hindu refuses to call you sinners. You are the children of God, the sharers of immortal bliss, holy and perfect beings. You divinities on earth, sinners, it is a sin to call a man a sinner. It is a standing libel on human nature. Uh, in another essay, uh, he wrote, Silly fools tell you you are sinners. I, I presume he knew that he was including Jesus Christ in that. Silly fools call you sinners. You are all God. Now, don't, don't, I don't know if you know much about Hinduism. This is not some, some sort of trivial view. Uh, not just is it held by a billion or so people. Uh, there, there's something that's... Um, that he's onto something here. There's something that's deeply right and attractive about this. But can you see how it's tilted one way? The necessary conclusion that goes with it uh, is that if and when we get around to fixing up all those external factors of education and parenting and environment and social services and government, then, then, finally, then, then we'll be free to be the kind of people that we all deep down are destined to be. Or perhaps, actually, uh, the most common kind of thing of all is a, a sort of oscillating confusion, uh, a, not an integrated view, a disintegrated view, so that when you hear of yet another suicide bombing in a crowded arena uh, where utterly um, uh, innocent kids are killed because they just happen to be at a concert, 
you, you, you shake your head and you wonder at the depravity of human nature. And then the next minute you watch, you know, whatever Australian story or something, you marvel at the goodness of human nature. And you just sort of bounce between these two without ever doing the work of understanding them together. Because I'd suggest it's only the Christian account of human nature that can incorporate both of these realities without flinching. The first thing that the gospel says about us is that we are unique in all creation, made in the image of God, creatures like the rest of creation, yes, but yet more than mere creatures, as Psalm 8 puts it, made a little less than God. We alone in creation are given the capacity to image God and therefore given responsibility appropriate to such image bearers, to tend and to keep, to exercise dominion and to cause to flourish. And that image might be marred, but it is not eradicated, no matter how far a person has fallen. Because the second thing that the gospel says about us is that we have fallen so far short of the glory of God in which and for which we are created. And this is where Alfred Eyre is exactly right. The gospel teaches us, and specifically the cross of Christ teaches us, this truth, the truth of total depravity, of original sin. Not that everything that human beings do is totally depraved, that is, as, as wicked as it could be, of course, that's obviously false. No, it's a, it's a slightly different meaning. It's that everything that human beings do, even the best things that human beings do, is tainted. All of them. They all carry with them a whiff of brokenness. Every one of them spoiled by the sickness of pride or fear and disinterest in the one who created us. Uh, there's two things to say in particular about this uh, depravity in all our doings. Uh, the first is that it's essential to see that it's the heart that matters. Uh, the internal reality rather than the external action. Uh, Jesus himself was brilliantly insightful about this. It's why he was so relentlessly unimpressed by the magnificently outwardly righteous Pharisees. They were totally scrupulous in the conduct of their lives. And at the same time, in fact, it was a product of the utter corruption of their hearts. Uh, Martin Luther uh, described this, this reality, this way in which even in the very good things that we do, we can be expressing the corruption of our hearts. He described uh, humanity as curved in on itself. It's the reason why basically nice person, a good person, good mate to his mates, etc., etc., can likewise be truly said to be caught, to be trapped in, to be held by this truth of original sin and its product, total depravity. Which relates uh, to the second point, namely, it's only in relation to God that the whole idea of sin makes sense in the first place. Uh, if there's no standard setter, if we are our own standard setters, and everything we do, every thought or word or deed is tainted by sin, then presumably even the standards that we set for ourselves will suffer that same defect. 
Do you see, apart from the living and true God who made us and loves us, who created our nature and set the patterns for this world so that sin is what breaks the world and, and goodness is what makes the world, apart from that God, sin is just what? Impoliteness, disagreement, social diversity. It's only in relation to God that the whole idea of right and wrong and good and evil and worthy and unworthy get off the ground at all. And it's the postmodernists who understand that. You see, uh, they will tell us that apart from God, the whole idea of sin is just a power play. One person or group trying to control another person or group. You see, it's this reality of being fallen image bearers that each one of us is both incredibly dignified in bearing the image of God and we will never let go of that and at the same time each one of us has fallen so terribly far short and we will not pretend about that it infects everything about us heart mind Will, emotions, actions, the lot. And what that means is simply this, that we are powerless to extract ourselves from our mess. We are powerless to extract ourselves from our own mess. Which relates to the second point, the power of the cross. Do you see how the, the theme of point one and point two actually belong together? They, they work with each other, the problem and the solution, the darkness and the light, sin and salvation. They're, they're intrinsically related as two sides of the same coin. The size of the problem identified will determine the size of the solution needed. If you understand the problem fundamentally to be a lack of educational opportunities for basically good people, then the solution is obvious. Free universal education for all. And then you recall that the 20th century is the most educated century in human history and the most barbaric and bloodthirsty century in all of human history. And you sort of wonder, why would anyone think that education is going to be the solution to our problems, though it is a good thing? If you see the problem as an irredeemable human violence and viciousness and soiling of the planet, then the solution is equally obvious, which is to get rid of them. And the sooner the better. But what if the problem is neither of those? What if human beings are redeemable, but not from within, not by themselves, not from our own resources, only from outside, only by a saviour. Which is why Christ alone is perhaps the most fundamental statement of the Christian gospel, actually. In Christ alone is atonement made. Uh, you may have had this experience, when your hands are dirty, Anything that you touch, likewise, becomes dirty, which means even when you're trying to clean up, all you do is make more things dirty. 
we can never become our own atonement because every effort to make up for what we've done wrong just adds to the wrong. Only in Christ do we have an atonement that's clean and pure. As the Apostle put it, there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself, human, who gave himself a ransom for all. See, there's the fundamental idea. That Christ Jesus, in his death on the cross, was not just a death, it was not just an heroic inspiring martyr's death it was a death for all a death for others a death on behalf of others a vicarious atonement a sacrificial death which need not have been made but was out of love a substitutionary death which means that he took our place in such a way that You don't have to die like that, abandoned by God. And perhaps even more deeply, a representative death that means that connected to him in Christ alone, you have already died. You are counted as one whose debt to death is already paid. So that your slate is clean and clear and crisp. So Alfred Eyre called this idea, what's expressed right here in 1 Timothy 2 and many, many other places, he called it intellectually contemptible and morally outrageous. And you, you need to wrestle with this actually. You need to take seriously what it is that he says because if you don't, you'll be actually vulnerable to what people attack you with. I'd suggest that he only calls it this because he misunderstands it and the Apostle is careful to make sure that we don't. How can one die for many? How can one die for all in the place of them? The Apostle's clear it's because Jesus Christ is in his own person the mediator. There is one God and one mediator between God and humankind. Jesus Christ is himself the mediator by being the God-man. The one who is both fully and truly God and fully and truly human. Himself human, the Apostle writes, means that on the one hand, he doesn't step into this situation as an alien to us, as someone who has no skin in this game. No, he's one of us who has taken upon himself our humanity in all its brilliance and its brokenness. Himself human. And at the same time, he's Christ Jesus, Messiah, anointed one. As as Psalm 2 puts it, my son whom I have begotten. One in being with the living and true God. So that as we confess in the creed which we say at our communion service every month or so, he's true God from true God. He's not some innocent third party to this transaction that sort of God whacks him instead of You. No, this is God himself taking into himself his own divine judgment and bearing it. In the same way that all true forgiveness, whenever you forgive or have been forgiven, it always works like this. The forgiver 
bears in her or himself the pain and cost of the wrongdoing. That's what's happening in the cross. And it can only happen because Jesus Christ in his own person is the God-man, the mediator. So that vicarious atonement, giving himself a ransom for all, is intellectually virtuous and morally compelling. Why Christ alone? Because sin is that deep. It's that big. Because before a living and holy God, there can be no other atonement. There can be no other way. And how Christ alone? In the cross. Only in the cross. As the Apostle Paul writes elsewhere, we have been justified by his blood. It's, it's, it's like the tightest of kernels, smallest of nutshells in which to describe it. We've been justified by his blood. And that's because there's one God and there can only be one mediator between God and human beings, Christ Jesus. If the problem is that big, then the solution has to be equally big. What else other than Christ could be sufficient for that? Which leads to the final point. You see, if this is an accurate diagnosis and a sufficient treatment, then it results in a particular mission. It's really interesting. In the passage uh, from 1 Timothy 2, Paul very explicitly links these two themes. You see, uh, the apostle starts by saying, um, uh, God desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. What goes with Christ alone is universal mission. One of the hardest things in life is to keep multiple priorities on the boil at the same time. I think, I think we find it very easy to say, I, I'm going to prioritise. This is first and then it's daylight. And then whatever second sort of follows up later. Uh, but, but we need to do better than that. There, there is ordinary life to be lived, to do your job in the home or in the workplace, to be a friend, to enjoy the world, to take your place in the life of your community and in your church. And and, and at the same time as all of that, to never let slip from your heart and mind that God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him might not perish but have eternal life because apart from Christ alone, guess what? Perishing is the destiny of us all. To have this heart for the lost this mission imperative as the backdrop to every relationship and every conversation and every prayer. This same heart as God's who desires everyone to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. It adds an irreducible itch in our souls. It puts a stone in the shoe of every moment, actually. An awareness that what love means in this relationship, what real caring includes as a fundamental concern, 
is that this person knows Christ alone, that they be included in Christ alone, that they put their ultimate hope and trust and rest in Christ alone. You may remember that uh, last year, if you were around, we did a thing called the National Church Life Survey. Uh, It's this long questionnaire, you know, 20 minutes, and they ask all sorts of really sneaky questions which get you to say things about yourself that you didn't realise you were saying. So that's what good surveys do, right? And uh, the results have come back. And one of the things that they asked us as a church about was the degree to which we felt at ease in talking about Christianity and looked for opportunities to do that. Okay, they'd asked us about mission. And there's a pretty interesting result that came out from that, that question. Uh, the result is that uh, when we all answered this, that of our number, only 10% of us feel at ease in talking about Christianity and look for opportunities to do so. 90% of us are either or both uneasy or unable to look for opportunities to share Christ. We've been bashed about by our culture, haven't we? We've been intimidated by the pluralism and the relativism and the demand for truth tolerance in our culture. That means we just are cowering in the corner. We're kind of shaken. And and part of what we need to do as a community is to build each other up, to strengthen confidence, to, to, to grow in skill so that we know how to do this job which the Lord has given us to do. Which relates to a second point, you see. Um, we, we're not only joined with God in mission, we're also to be joined with each other in that same mission. Because uh, one of the really interesting things about Christ alone is that Christ is never alone. That is, Christ is never without his church. In Christ alone actually is a very substantial place. There's plenty of room for other people. There's lots of us actually. And that means although the church is never to become the mediator between God and humanity, there's there's only one mediator and that's Jesus himself. Although the church is never to replace Christ as the home for our hearts, yet at the same time, precisely because a head is never without its body, Christ is not without his church. The body of Christ. Uh, Paul uh, put it like this in his first letter to the Corinthians. He says, As in one body we have many members and not all the members have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. We belong to each other. We're members of each other. We're joined at the hip. That's what Paul's saying. We're joined together, connected to each other in the same way, for the same reason, and with the same intensity with which we're connected to Christ and particularly joined in mission. All right, let's draw the threads together. Uh, We we started by saying we live in a pluralistic society and um, actually I'd I'd say that that's the Christian way. That's, that's, That's a Christian contribution to the world, social pluralism. There are some things that belong to God and not to Caesar, Jesus said. And that means that people in a society should be free to live their lives at those points without the interference of the state, without the interference of Caesar. Caesar should back off. 
What's more, and, and maybe this is paradoxical, Christ alone only reinforces this social pluralism because it says that the only object of ultimate loyalty should be Christ. And if the only, ultimate of, uh, sorry, only object of ultimate loyalty is Christ, it means that it's completely legitimate to hold other less penultimate loyalties like ethnicity or culture or nation or following the swans rather than the obvious best team to follow, which is, actually, I don't care. Who watches aerial ping pong anyway? Just support Roger Federer. He's a, he's a tennis player, by the way, in case you don't know who he is. Did you see how it works? If Christ is your only ultimate loyalty, it means you can be free to let others hold other penultimate loyalties and not have to fight about it. But that social pluralism must never drift into a truth pluralism, which fantasizes that all truths are equally true or all solutions are equally powerful. Now, the word of God to us this evening is simply this. There is one God. And there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus. Christ alone, himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. And so it makes all the sense in the world to live in Christ alone. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we do lift up our hearts to you in praise and worship and adoration as the only ultimate object and resting point for our hearts as the one whom we can trust and look to and stake our whole lives and selves on. We praise you that you gave yourself a ransom for all, for us, even for me. And we pray that by your grace you would fill us and strengthen us, equip us and empower and embolden us and give us to live for your praise and glory. Bear witness to you, Christ alone. Amen.